Magic Book Club with Benson's for Beds. Hello, hello. Welcome along. It is the Magic Book Club podcast. Thank you so much for listening. My name's Tom Price and this is the show where I find out exactly what makes our favourite authors put pen to paper, fingers to keyboard, whatever it is that makes them write their fantastic books. On this episode, I'm going to catch up with truly one of the biggest writers in the world. She's been published in 120 countries. She's sold over 35 million copies and she's just dropped using using some podcast lingo there and she's just released her newest novel false witness it is a great read and i'm really thrilled to welcome onto the show karen slaughter wow karen i'm so pleased you're here you've sold you've sold pretty much more books than the bible that's well i'm not sure about that but i certainly write about as much murder and incest as the bible has There's equal amounts of bloodshed, that's for sure. Um, so it is a pleasure to to welcome you onto the podcast. It's well, always, thank you. Always a joy to speak to um, writers of, of books like yours, thrillers, and and you know all the all the as you said all the murder and various awful things that go on in the book. And yet you sound so nice, Karen. You sound so nice. Yes. Well, don't be fooled. I think most crime writers are pretty laid back. Mm. Um, you know, Mike Connolly is just a teddy bear. <laughs> Mark Billingham. Well, I mean, Mark's not a good example of anything, is he? No, no, absolutely uh, but not. For the no. most part, Lee Child, a total sweetheart. So yes, don't be yes. fooled, is what I'm saying. I feel like I'm completing a set getting you on the show, actually, because we've had Lee on, we've had Mark on, we've had we had Harlan Coburn on the other day. So I'm very pleased that we've got you on now. I feel like this is a set of. The- well, yeah, it sounds like a sausage fest. You should get some more ladies. <laughs> Well, yeah, but it is in terms of writing thriller, uh, thriller novels. It is a bit of a sausage fest, and it's good that you know we're representing how many brilliant female writers there are out there writing this genre. And uh, False Witness, your latest book, is absolutely brilliant. Tell us a bit about it. Ah, uh, well, it's about five hundred pages. Uh, it has a red cover. Um, no, it's a uh, it's about trauma, really. Uh, two uh, characters, sisters, Callie and Lee experience a horrific trauma in their late childhood that follows them into the adulthood that we are reading about. And, you know, it's set in the time of the pandemic. It's not really about the pandemic, uh, but it was a, a really good framework to talk about the trauma that we're collectively experiencing right now as we hopefully get out of this pandemic and yeah. there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Maybe it's not an oncoming train, but I thought it would be a really good way to kind of talk about what's going on now and what are we going to look like in 20 years? How is this going to affect the kids who are living through it? We know a lot about childhood trauma, the health effects. You're more likely to have heart disease or depression or drug addiction, alcoholism, all these sorts of horrible things that visit you later in life as an adult because of the trauma you experience in childhood. So what are we going to be looking at in 20 years? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I found it really refreshing when I realized very early on in the book that you are writing about COVID times, you know, and there seems to be a bit of a blank spot for a lot of writers. People seem to be swerving that thinking, well, no one wants to think about it. We've all lived through it. We've lived through this awful viral kind of blitz for the last however many years. Who wants to read about it? But I really did. I found it tremendously comforting to have these characters, you know, having the same thoughts and feelings and fears um, that I've had over the last uh, year and a half or so. And I, I did, did you feel a certain sense of purging when you were writing about the anxieties? And of course, Callie, who, who gets COVID really badly as well. Yeah, I did, you know. Um, and it was really interesting to me because this 
this craziness we're living in, it seemed to happen so quickly, but also slowly at the same time. Mm. Uh, and when I was writing about it, so much kept changing. So I had to go back and amend the book. But normally when, especially when I write a standalone, when I get to the middle of the book, I do something that is for the first time. I go back to the first part of the book and read it in its entirety from the first word to the middle, right? Mm -hmm. Because I'm looking for voice. Is the Callie you meet on this page the same as the Callie in the middle of the book? Is there consistency? Have I planted the right clues? Have I put in the right red herrings? But it really just made me sit back and say, oh my God, I can't believe how much our lives have changed. Yeah. How w this quickly became so normal to you know, wear a face mask or, you know, you get halfway out of your car and you think, ah, crap, I forgot my mask yes, or, yes, you yeah. know, just somebody sneezes and you look at them like they're a pedophile, well, you know, what, <laughs> are you infecting me? This is what happened. It's exactly what happened when I was reading it on the train yesterday. Lee is going into a meeting and she said there's two men in there and they don't have their masks on and there was something very, I, I hesitate to tar all men with this brush, but Whenever I see people on the train who don't have masks on, and I know we have to be, we have to do the big caveat about some people have hidden reasons not to wear a mask, but there often mm -hmm. seems to be a kind of type of man who doesn't wear a mask or who wears it around his chin. And as I'm sitting on the train and you're describing this in the book, I look up and there's this funny guy opposite me doing exactly that, eating away, mask down around his chin on the train. And I just thought I, I really related to the book. I really connected to the book and it helped me dive in even more. Well, it is crazy, isn't it? I mean, a lot of them will wear it below their nose. I mean, it's it's sort of like getting a man to wear a condom, right? And you just think, <laughs> yes. if you yes. only knew, even a mild case of COVID can cause erectile dysfunction, yeah. right? If, if more men knew that, I think there would be more mass compliance. Not because it's good for society and that it helps protect people, but if you're Dick can't get hard. Maybe that's something that's going to compel you yeah. to wear a mask and get a vaccine. They used it for smoking, didn't they? They went, they went, uh, to forgive the pun, but they went hard at that for, for smoking and it, it, it works. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I get the pun. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. You know, it is kind of crazy though. I mean, the politicization of it. And mm. I just wanted to capture that because yes. I don't think textbooks are really going to tell us the story so much as fiction and having lived through it. And I think of, you know, Pell Horse, Pell Rider, which is a collection by Catherine Ann Porter. She wrote evocatively about the Spanish flu in 1918. And, you know, I read about it, of course, in, in history. But when you read fiction like that, you get the taste and the smell and the fear and the visceral reaction. And that's really what I wanted to capture, but also put it in the framework of what is hopefully for people, uh, just a heart-pounding thriller that makes you want to keep turning the pages. Yeah, it really does. It really does. It, it's, um, it is a fantastic story, and it is completely compelling. I'm constantly desperate to find out what's going to happen next. It has, I um, mean, you probably won't appreciate this because you've got various shows coming out on Netflix, but I've even turned off my Netflix, Karen. I mean, come on, for goodness sake, I'm oh, switching off Netflix to read your book. That's un unacceptable. That's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy times. It's crazy times. Um, and it is, it tunes into, obviously, there, like you say, there is this kind of, we're living in crazy times at the moment, but the madness of what happened to Callie and Lee in their past and the things that went on with them, for them, for those things to be coming to this head at the moment for, and for this, for this case to be coming uh, to, to Lee's desk, Lee as a, a solicitor, 
a lawyer, I should say, uh, and for her to have all these things coming together at once. It is a perfect storm in these people's lives. What is it about reading someone's perfect storm that we as readers love so much? Why do we enjoy other people's perfect storms so much? Well, I think in one way it's cathartic, right? Because you're reading about awful things, but you're safe. And Mm -hmm. we're all experiencing an awful thing. The entire world, even tribes in the Amazon that have very very little contact with humans are experiencing COVID at first. So I think part of it is that. Part of it is, you know, we all have this tendency to slow down to look at a car accident. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of it is, I think, the question of not just what's going to happen next in the plot, but how are these characters going to respond? Because I work very hard to humanize them, you know, because of this trauma they had as young women. They've completely altered the course of their lives. And for Lee, her choice was to try to control everything, you know, whether she's talking to her husband or her um, guy she's having an affair with or her sister or her mother or, you know, her child. She's a different person to each one, and she's so in control down to how she responds to people. And then you have Callie, whose response has been to completely abdicate control. Mm -hmm. She's a drug addict. She's addicted to heroin. She has a physical as well as a psychological addiction. She has an understanding of this addiction that I think a lot of people who are junkies do, but also doesn't have the ability to break herself of the spell of heroin because it, in some ways, for her, it's the only comfort in her life. It's the only thing that she can depend on. And so writing about these different reactions gave me an opportunity to really humanize how this trauma affects people well into their adulthood. Yes, yeah, and it becomes so completely enmeshed in their personality. And we really see that with with Callie and her addiction, the, the gorilla that chases her and appears and, and drags her back to, to her precious drugs. She, she loves those drugs. And that must have been a very difficult thing for you to write and a very diff- difficult topic to explore. How do you begin to go about researching that and, and making it so authentic? Well, I didn't do heroin, of course. Um, okay, just checking. That you know yeah, that's all I wanted to it's, make sure, just to confirm. It's completely anathema to me, I have to admit. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never done an illegal drug. I've never uh, smoked marijuana. Mm-hmm. I've never been interested in that. And part of that is because my sister, who is uh, almost four years older than me, was a meth addict when I was growing up. Okay. And I watched what it did to her. And for me, it was really just like a a front row seat to how Mm. drugs can destroy your life. And, you know, there are people who can use it recreationally and they go off and they have great lives. She was not one of those people. She got addicted immediately and lost a good part of her early adulthood to drugs. So with Callie specifically, I wanted to write about that and humanize her. You know, oftentimes when we see junkies, they're either pathetic or horrible people or they're, they're, you know, filthy living in the streets and you can't trust them and they commit horrible crimes and all this other stuff. I mean, I know England has taken a a more humane approach to people who register as heroin addicts and they give them, you know, a clean um, vial of the drugs to use as a maintenance dose. We don't do that here. We just punish people and punish them and punish them as if it's a moral failure. So I wanted to really show the complexities of addiction and why Callie is so incapable of stopping it. Because, you know, we, we have this idea that addiction is a disease, but it's actually a, a symptom. It's a cluster of diseases 
that lead to addiction. And until we accept that and start looking into what works as a treatment option, we're never really going to solve the problem. And as with everything else, the pandemic has amplified the horror of heroin and who, what we call pillbillies who are um, addicted to Oxycontin. Mm-hmm. We've seen a spike in overdoses and it's, it's really horrific. The number of people we've lost just to addiction in the last year and a half because the pandemic has made everything harder for them. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels like such an important part of that is the, as you say, it, you know, and it's, it still happens here. There is a huge shame and a huge sense of these people need to be punished that prevails amongst certain parts of society that believes that anyone who finds themselves addicted has chosen that and has flawed and it's you know they have a quite intolerant approach to it that that shame and that wish to hide things that also relates not just to the drugs element of the storyline but of course what happened to Callie especially and Lee when when they were younger as well so the kind of the darkness in their past it's not just born out with the drugs as well there's there's so many things locked up in what happened to them what's well, yeah it's true and you know they love each other they're sisters they care for each other a great deal but the hardest thing for them is to be with each other because they don't have a normal relationship they only get together when something bad happens because every time they look into each other's eyes they're reminded of this horrific event in their past and you know i i think that 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 is something that a lot of people feel who have survived horrific childhoods is they they feel connected to their siblings, but in a weird way, they feel like I can't be around them because they just remind me of the person I was when that happened. Yes, yes. And it's like going back into an old house or an old building where bad things happened. I guess it's a similar thing, which is where we find our characters as well when they they revisit the physical uh, place where where awful things happened. And there is this sense of, certainly in in the... uh, the house where the the storyline begins there's this tremendous sense of danger that looms over both of them and yet they seem so strong in the face of it do you enjoy that writing these strong women who who face up who front up to these things that are brewing in their lives you know i really do and i remember very early in my career with my first two or three books i was constantly asked why do you write about strong women as if that's an unusual thing and i suppose if you're used to reading you know, when I first started, it was very heavily male-dominated mm. uh, in a way that I think was not very good for the genre. But men only wrote about women who were in service to the male character. And I don't mean all, of course, but, you know, the predominant yeah. storyline was, yeah. this is the hero, the woman is there to be saved or screwed. Yeah. And I constantly got asked, why are you writing about strong women? And I remember having a conversation with Lee Child about this, and I said, does anyone ever ask you why Lee, why Jack Reacher is so strong? <laughs> and he said, never. And so I, I just took this, this tact with interviewers that I wasn't going to ask them that question until they started asking the guys, why are you writing about strong men? Yeah. And it does interest me because I know a hell of a lot of strong women. And we see this. We see women in leadership roles. We see women who are doctors and lawyers and, you know, all these professions. And they are very complicated, interesting people. And it seemed like in the beginning of my career, people were curious about that because it was not anything that was ever written about in a positive way. And I wanted to change that. And, you know, when I started, it was me, Mo Hader, 
Kathy Reichs, Patsy Cornwell. We were basically the only women who were writing these what they called masculine books or yeah. muscular books. And I'm so grateful now that we have so many other women who are in the genre, you know, from Gillian Flynn, Alifair Burke, Lisa Gardner. I mean, Lisa's written all along. She started in romance. But, you know, we, we're able to flex our muscle in a way that is a lot more acceptable now because society has kind of become resolved to the fact that women have personalities and feelings and you know, we used to call them strong-minded, but now we just call them women. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I love, I adore uh, Gillian Flynn. It's absolutely brilliant. So, so many, you're absolutely right. There's so many fantastic, so many fantastic. I tell you who writes really great, a really great female character, and I, I poo-poo on him a lot is Mark Billingham. I mean, he just mm. really, he's captured in um, his series a woman who I think is just extremely multifaceted and interesting and but you know mark is a guy who in real life listens to women lee child does the same way you know he writes quite feminist books because jack reacher doesn't meet women who fall apart and need his help he meets women who are going to grab a gun and go shoulder to shoulder with him fighting the bad guys so i i do think that it's really nice as a, a person who loves this genre reads constantly in this genre that guys are doing this as well. It also just makes it, I mean, irrelevant of the huge and uh, rightly trumpeted feminist issue. It, it just makes it better to read. Forgetting the whole gender agenda, if you like, it's just better when there are, you know, women characters who have parity and, and agency in books. It's just a simple thing. And it's, you know, it's good to celebrate it, I suppose. You know, it feels... Absolutely. It feels fantastic now. Um, do you ever find, though, because uh, you do write, you go to dark places, do you ever have to step back? How do you... Uh, how do you how do you take yourself away from the headspace which you must have to enter to write these things? You know, I've I've done it so long; it's not very hard, and it's never been difficult because writing those scenes that are take an unflinching look at violence—that's not the hard part. That is a, a very technical to me. You know, it's sort of marked out in my mind what everything, how everything looks, what steps are taken, what the rooms look like, what they feel like, what the characters feel. All of that I approach from a very technical point of view. Then you have what happens next. You know, it's in, in many ways, it's very easy to write a shocking scene. But if you can't put it in context, it's not going to stick with the reader. And so while we do have this horrible thing that happens with, with Callie and Lee in the beginning, the fallout of that, how it affects them, what they do the next hour, the next day, the next month, the following years afterward, that's the difficult part of writing because what I'm writing about is stuff that happens a lot. You know, not maybe not the particular opening that doesn't happen a lot, or maybe it should, but, you know, women are abused constantly. Women are sexually harassed. Women are murdered, you know, especially in America. If a gun is in a household, the woman is most likely to be the victim of gun violence. So, there's a lot of violence out there that women deal with every single day of their lives or the fear of violence or the threat of violence. Uh, so, you know, writing about that is what interests me. But that is the hard part is to find a way to articulate not just this point of view, but different women's points of view. Mm-hmm. And also to counteract the desensitization to the violence because we do become desensitized to it in movies and in the as you say the news the horrific news and certainly i'm sure in america with the the gun epidemic problem that you've got over there 
but what's amazing about your books and about when books are written well like this is that it, it counteracts the desensitization because we are into the characters and we're into their lives and we see the reality of what this violence means and it's a very powerful thing do you ever surprise yourself when you come up with these scenarios do you ever have to step back and catch your breath because you're just so sort of does it shock you still it doesn't, it doesn't, particularly with violence against women. And part of that is just, I've read so, so many textbooks. I've talked to so many police officers. I've read case reports. I've read autopsies. I've been at autopsies. So in a way, I, I go back to thinking about it in technical terms. Um, the thing that I think resonates the most with my readers are the smaller scenes. Like in False Witness, Lee is walking through a parking lot. She immediately gets her keys, puts the, uh, the, the one key sticking out between her fingers, and she hears a noise, and she makes this joke to herself about it being a serial killer. And that is something women do every single day. You know, when we hear a noise or we're, we get a fright, it, it, we immediately go to the worst thing we can think of, which is it's a, a rapist, it's a serial killer, it's, you know, something bad. Whereas a man walking through a parking lot thinks, oh, what is that noise? I should investigate. Or, oh, it's just a noise. I'll keep going to my car. So that's the kind of moments that I want to capture. Um, and, and I don't necessarily step back and say, wow, this really bad scene I wrote or bad things happen. Um, I need to take a breath. I do it when I think of what comes after. And, and part of that is because when I was growing up as a child, my grandmother was being abused by my grandfather. I mean, he just knocked the hell out of her. And we saw this every Sunday at the dinner table because she would have a cut lip or a black eye or a broken bone. And my uncles would tease her about being clumsy. And as I got older, I realized no one's that clumsy. This is my grandfather. And I can guarantee you that it never helped my grandmother to be silent about what was happening. It only protected my grandfather. And so that's what I think about when I write these scenes is, um, you know, it's not sexy. It's not titillating. It's not, there's nothing funny about it. There's nothing wrote about it for me because I think of my grandmother is that woman or could have been that woman who I'm writing about and I want to honor her story and tell the truth about it. Mm. And it is that truth, that, it's that truth and that detail that makes it resonate and that's the reason you've sold so many books i mean it has to be that it's that that mission and that purpose you know as you said this is not a necessarily a fun roller coaster ride this is built in a in a in a real world and we sense that on every page of your books well thank you i mean that's what i strive for i want it to appear realistic you know but that being said if this isn't your kind of book please don't read it i mean my my last name should be your warning <laughs> what this a name uh, is that your real name <laughs> So this is this slaughter it's not uh romance it's not you know <laughs> I, I i do think that i have different elements i mean i try to imbue humor into the story i i try to make the characters have a humanity i mm. i do have a little romance that sort of thing but it, it's very core it's a thriller and it's a very unflinching look at things that happen yeah Callie is funny. Callie's got a wicked sense of humour. I love her. She's great. Um, all right, so False Witness, uh, Karen Slaughter's latest novel, is out now. Um, also, Karen, tell us a little bit quickly before we lose you today uh, about the Save the Libraries project. What's what's this all about? 
Well, you know, you have the reading project over there, and Save the Libraries has actually donated to them. And what we're trying to do is keep libraries open. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know that it benefits politicians not to have a public that's educated and informed and has a critical thinking ability, but I'm a big proponent of that. There are a lot of authors I know, Mike Connolly, Neil Gaiman, Lee Child has done fundraisers with me to help libraries. And we just try to raise money and awareness that libraries are very important. Uh, In America, for instance, during the pandemic, a lot of kids, particularly in rural areas, don't have access to the Internet. And so libraries uh, open their Wi-Fi for free. Mm -hmm. You could come and sit in the parking lot and Zoom into your school uh, if that's what you needed to do. Or some kids, even in urban areas, their only access to the Internet is on their their the cell phone that their parent has. So if the parent gets a, a call, math class is over. So libraries have been letting students check out MacBooks or laptops and hotspots. And I mean, they've just been really the backbone of our communities from the get go. And so I think it's very important to make sure we're keeping those doors open because it returns so much. Have they been having cuts for those libraries? Have they been having They, they been have them been down? having, yeah, they had some. Really after 2008, with the economic downturn, a lot of politicians looked at budgets and said, oh, we don't need libraries. Well, of course, it was the librarians that got us in this trouble in 2008. So quite right. Yes, exactly. We had to punish them. Mm -hmm. um, Build more banks. For all the derivatives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, But it's, you know, it's so short-sighted because in the United States, at least, for every $2 you spend on libraries, you get $3 back. So that's a good investment. I mean, you couldn't get that in the stock market unless you were Bernie Madoff. So it's really important that we we have kids who have access to reading because if they are fluent readers, they'll do better in school. If they do better in school, they'll go to college. If they go to college, they're more likely to get a high-paying job and pay lots of taxes. So it's a, it's really the the cheapest investment we can make as a society is making our children um capable of walking into a library and reading any book yes 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 we love libraries well it sounds like a wonderful thing that's the save the libraries project um look karen i could talk to you all day thank you so much for joining us false witness your latest novel uh your six thousandth novel oh no 20 um it's out now and people are going to absolutely love it it's a proper page turner uh karen thanks for coming on the magic book club podcast my pleasure thank you There you go. That's it for this week's episode of the Magic Book Club podcast. Join me next time for more brilliant stories from fantastic story writers and head over to magic.co.uk to see the rest of our June picks. And of course, join the club for yourself. In the meantime, happy reading. Hold up. 